here's an outline of what I'm going to say on the screens behind me. Should you need it, I, I would like to think that you won't need it because it will be so luminously clear where we are, but I, I fear not. Um, so you have an outline there just in case and you can follow along on that. There is, we know, a comparative absence in the United Kingdom, perhaps I should say more, even more so in England, of covenant theology. Among conservative evangelicals, and this would be particularly true of Anglicans, though not exclusively, uh, the kingdom theology of Graham Goldsworthy dominates the scene. And if a young person wants to know how the Bible fits together, he'll be sent to Goldsworthy's work and he will find out from that work how it fits together. Some are anti-covenant theology, not just indifferent to it, but positively opposed to it. An Australian friend of mine who teaches at Moore College said this on his blog once, perhaps we should encourage a moratorium on covenant language in Reformed and Evangelical theology. Which would make preaching a little bit difficult, wouldn't it? For others, it's not something they oppose it is just a non-issue. It hasn't even got on the radar as an issue to consider. That's different in America, of course, because the kinds of debates you have with dispensationalists, Reformed Baptists, Presbyterians, New Covenant theologians, etc., are all very much debates about covenant theology. So although there's no single uh, covenant theology in America as an issue, it's more live, I think. And that, of course, means that we pick up some of those issues over here, and I think it's becoming more of an issue over here than it has been. Some of you will therefore know a lot about covenant theology uh, and would love a paper on the intricacies of the covenant of works and some of you will be thinking I can barely recall what the covenant of works is. Which one is it of those various covenants that the Reformed talk about? Now you know if you've been at the conference which it is. It's God's covenant with Adam. Uh, there are other covenants in Reformed theology like the covenant of redemption between the persons of the Trinity, the covenant of grace which is God's saving covenant. But we're concerned here with God's covenant with Adam Covenant of life, covenant of friendship, covenant of works, covenant of creation, Edenic covenant, they all refer to the same thing. Just to remind you, and as I said, we've touched on this already, the parties to the covenant are God and Adam with his posterity in him. Uh, there is no mediator in this covenant because you don't need one. We'll come back to that. The stipulation, well, God requires of Adam a general obedience to the law, which typically the Reformed sum up as the Ten Commandments with due adjustments for the stage of history that we're in, but also specific obedience to this positive law, this law that is published to Adam, which is spoken to him by God about the tree. There are sacraments in this covenant. Typically, the two trees are viewed as sacraments by Reformed theologians. Some add some other sacraments as well. Um, and, of course, there is a promise, the promise of life. And there is disagreement among the Reformed about what that life will be and how it will happen. And I'd love you to ask me some questions. There was a, a sort of third section to this paper that got lopped off because um, it was too long. But if you want to ask some questions about, so what would happen to Adam and how and what would happen to the world and what do the Reformed think about that and are they right? I'd love to come back to that at the end. Now, the stakes in discussing the covenant of works are high. Many Reformed theologians, especially of a Kleinian stripe, the, the, the followers and enthusiasts of the work of Meredith Klein, in brackets, I love the work of Meredith Klein, it's full of fantastic stuff, but I don't agree with all of it. Many of his followers think that if you touch anything with Adam, you destroy the whole of Christian theology. If you tamper with the traditional conception of the covenant of works in any way, it's all over for the gospel. You lose everything. And my aim this morning really is to explore that claim, to explore the consequences of saying and thinking certain things about Adam 
for the covenant of grace. And I want to, um, I don't want to disagree with the claim, but I want to refine the claim. I think the claim is right with reference to certain issues, but can be over-applied. So actually, some of you may have been expecting me to argue that God was in a covenant with Adam. Um, uh, But I'm not going to talk about that now, because really the issues that we're going to be talking about apply in our theology whether we think that God was in a covenant with Adam, Adam was in a covenant with God, or not. Uh, Because all of us agree, I guess, that God was in uh, some kind of relationship with Adam, and Adam was in a relationship with God. And very often you find when you talk to somebody who resists the idea of Adam being in a covenant with God, that they take substantially the same view of his relationship with God, but for various terminological reasons just don't want to call it a covenant. Okay, so there there are ways of thinking God isn't in a covenant with Adam, um, which leave you almost identical to traditional reformed conceptions of his relationship. Um, But then there would be other ways, of course, which are more significant disagreements than that. So uh, I don't want to get caught up in the label too much. Again, we could come back to that at the end if you want to. Uh, But I want to look at some of the issues. So if you don't believe that there was a covenant between Adam and God at creation, don't start checking your emails now because this is still relevant to you. The issues are still there about their relationship. Now, what I'm saying, therefore, is that uh, for everybody, there is a connection between God's relationship to Adam and his relationship to Christ and his relationship to us, no matter what you designate those relationships. And it's that connection which we're going to be exploring. Now, I will argue, then, that some versions of or changes to the creation covenant do indeed threaten the covenant of grace, the gospel. But that there are other versions of the creation covenant or changes to it that don't do that. And we therefore need to be very careful to distinguish them. Now, why would a change to Adam affect the gospel? Well, it would simply because of the Adam-Christ connection that we saw yesterday in 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 5. As Vane argued, the Adam-Christ pattern structures Paul's view of history, past, present and future. Christ uh, is the last Adam and there are various typological identifications between Adam and Christ. Think of the just as of Romans 5.12 or the if then how much more statements that you get in 15 and 17 or the as so statements that you get in 18 and 19. These are clear and strong connections between Adam and Christ. So that there's a good prima facie argument that if you do something to Adam, it could affect your view of Christ and it could do it dangerously. But again, perhaps not everything you do to Adam would have that effect. So my plea this morning is really for carefulness about these kinds of arguments. Precisely because the Adam-Christ connection is true and matters, the stakes are indeed very high. But it's when the stakes are very high that we have to tread most carefully. We have to do that, first of all, to avoid missing a problem. It could be that somebody out there is tampering with Adam in a way that will wreck the covenant of grace, and we might miss it if we don't think hard and carefully about it. But on the other hand, we might misdiagnose something as an error which is not actually an error or as a fatal error which is an error but not a fatal error. 
So the parallel raises the stakes, but there are dangers, and that's why we need to tread so carefully. Now, let me give you a couple of examples then, fairly obvious examples, of ways of tampering with Adam that do indeed affect dangerously and potentially fatally affect our view of Christ. Now, of course, people are inconsistent. So somebody might tamper with Adam and cling on to something with Christ. You can't impute every implication of somebody's view to them. Uh, but nonetheless, the, the, the implications matter. Okay. So here are two examples. So I'm not saying then that anybody who denies that Adam exists, which is our first error, uh, necessarily does deny Christ. They're, they're in deep and serious theological error, to my mind. But they might cling on to some of the gospel. But the point is that their argument about Adam implies things about Christ, which I would argue it logically implies and necessarily implies, and that matters. So, if Adam is a myth, as we considered yesterday, expressive of the community's needs, then, as Lane argued, why not Christ? Why not the resurrection of Christ the same? So, at the moment, we have a crisis in Old Testament scholarship. Um, there are actually um, pretty few genuinely conservative Old Testament scholars in the world, I think. I mean, my experience in 1990, when I started as an undergraduate, was it was, it was pretty clear. Um, I knew... Uh, that the evangelical view was that JEDP was a wrong account of the origins of the Pentateuch and that there weren't three Isaiahs. That is no longer clear to many, many evangelicals. Now, at the moment, New Testament scholarship, evangelical New Testament scholarship, remains more conservative. But it will only be a matter of time. You do something to Adam, you do it to Christ. You do it to the Pentateuch, you do it to the Gospels. What we think about Adam will catch up with what we think about Christ. So, if we deny the historicity of Adam, that has clear and, I would argue, fatal consequences for our understanding of Christ. Secondly, the denial of headship. If we disallow the idea that Adam rightly and justly acted for us and represented us in his relationship with God, that he was a divinely appointed federal representative head, then we will have ultimately to reject the idea of Christ as our federal representative. In other words, if we lose original sin we will ultimately lose atonement and justification. Now, those are two examples of positions on Adam which definitely and dangerously affect the covenant of grace. That's why we had last night's session, and it's why we're having the next session. But I want, for the bulk of our time, to think about some other issues where I think we need to be more nuanced. Two questions. First of all, was, Adam's, was a God's covenant with Adam a gracious covenant, or did it involve merit? Here the issue is this. If we think that that relationship involved grace, is that a fatal flattening out of the differences between the covenant of creation and the covenant of grace? Such that we become like Adam, perhaps, and have to save ourselves in the same way, or something like that. The details will become clear. Secondly, was Adam expected to have faith? And again, well, is that dangerous? Because if we do say he had to have faith, well, then is he becoming too much like us? Or are we becoming too much like him? So we lose those differences. So let's think about the first one. Was God's covenant with Adam a gracious covenant or did it involve merit? Many insist that the covenant of works was absolutely not and must not have been a covenant based on any kind of divine grace. They try to exclude all grace from it. And they think that this is of the utmost seriousness that we deny grace in God's relationship with Adam. 
That is the position of the later Meredith Klein. I would argue in Bioth Consigned, his earlier work, he allows a kind of grace in God's relationship with Adam. But the later Klein and some Kleinians, especially Lee Irons, who's written an interesting article on this, he puts it like this. To inject grace into the covenant of works is to soften the law-gospel contrast and replace it with a continuum. Once this is done, one can no longer make a clear-cut distinction between faith and works with respect to the justification of sinners. In other words, it's pretty stark. Grace and faith must always be strictly antithetical to law and works. If you allow Adam to obey and to benefit from God's grace, you lose that antithesis, Irons is arguing. And if you lose the antithesis for Adam, between his obedience and grace, by allowing grace into Eden, then you will lose it for us too. And the gospel has gone. Because you'll no longer be able to say that justification is by grace alone through faith alone, because you've lost that sharp antithesis between grace and law. So any grace for Adam and the vital separation for faith and works has gone. In short, the gospel has gone. Klein says something similar in a 1994 review of a book by Daniel Fuller. He writes this. Grace is, of course, the term we use for the principle operative in the gospel that was missing from the pre-fall covenant. Properly defined, grace is not merely the bestowal of unmerited blessings, but God's blessing of man in spite of his demerits, in spite of his forfeiture of divine blessings. Clearly, we ought not apply this term grace to the pre-fall situation. For neither the bestowal of blessings on Adam in the very process of creation, nor the proposal to grant him additional blessings contemplated him as in a guilty state of demerit. Or again, he says, theologically it's of the greatest importance to recognise that the idea of demerit is an essential element in the definition of grace. Now these are very strong statements. Feel the force of them. One can no longer make a clear-cut distinction between faith and works. It is of the greatest importance. Now, it doesn't take much reading in the classical sources of Reformed Covenant theology to discover that the Reformed theologians readily and repeatedly allow grace in God's relationship with Adam. Klein knows this, he recognises it in Kingdom Prologue, and he thinks it is a serious mistake, which is the undoing of Reformed theology, if we allow it. So let me explore with you then, well, where did they find grace in God's covenant with Adam? And then we'll think about whether it matters. In three ways. First of all, in the constitution of the covenant. They believed that the constitution of the covenant was a gracious act. The Westminster Confession talks about God's voluntary condescension in his covenant with Adam, and others go ahead and label that grace. Robert Rollock, a great early covenant theologian, put it like this. This word grace is taken more generally than this word mercy. You see, you can have grace before the fall. You can have mercy, but you can have grace. For whereas mercy doth more properly respect such as are in misery and sinners, grace reacheth unto all creatures of what kind or condition soever they be, as well to the blessed angels as to sinful men. 
I want to introduce you, if you've not met him, to Francis Roberts. Francis Roberts, in I think the 1650s, wrote a 1,700-page covenant theology. Um, I'm about 80 pages into it. Um, I reckon there might be one man on earth who's read the whole thing. I'm not sure. Um, it's a monster. It's, some of it's really good. It's certainly very stimulating. He is very strong on the constitution of the covenant being gracious. God might have dealt with man in a more absolute, lordly and majestical way, he says, but instead he hath pleased to condescend to a more relative, familiar covenant way. Why? Well, for Roberts, God is happy and the source of all happiness. God is his own happiness eternally, he says. The persons of the Trinity have eternal and infinite fullness of satisfaction, complacency and acquiescence in themselves alone. God in Trinity is happy in himself. And all our happiness comes from him. As drops out of his ocean, as grains out of his mountain, as littles out of his all, Robert says. And it comes to us in covenant. God gives of his own to man and expects again of his own from man, that reciprocal covenant relationship. So do you see what Roberts is doing? He's thinking about the being of God. God is happy. And he's understanding that because of who God is, God is always gracious to his creatures. Indeed, the, the act of creation is an outpouring of his happiness, his goodness toward creatures. So he's tying his understanding of God's relationship to Adam to his understanding of the being of God. What is striking is that Roberts is therefore prepared to go so far as to say that you shouldn't call the covenant of grace, God's redemptive covenant, the covenant of grace. Because that's to create a wrong contrast with his covenant with Adam in Eden. So he rejects the label covenant of grace. He says, some distinguish God's covenant into the covenant of works and covenant of grace. But the members of this distinction are not opposite. For it was an act of God's grace and favour that he would enter into a covenant of works with Adam before as well as after the fall. Well, is this theological China syndrome? Have we just gone into total meltdown? Because we've not only allowed grace, we've insisted on grace before the fall. Well, actually, no. When you look at Roberts, he's got strong and marked distinctions between God's relationship with Adam and his relationship with us. He is not a mono-covenantalist, somebody who believes that there is just one covenant that's the same before the fall as after it. He says the covenant of works and the covenant of faith, his preferred term, are two opposite kinds of covenants. So you can allow grace before the fall and insist on two opposite kinds of covenants, as Roberts does. So this is the heart, really, of what I want to say uh, this morning, of my burden, if you like. Klein is right strongly to emphasise the connection between Adam and Christ. He is right that there is danger in tampering with your understanding of Adam. But when it comes to some of the specific warnings of danger that we have from Klein and Kleinians, it is not the case that every warning is necessarily correct. We see that by going back to the Reformed tradition on the question of grace in Eden. So that's the first way, grace in the constitution of the covenant. Secondly, 
Grace for Adam when he obeys. Adam would obey by grace. Now, the Reformed don't believe in the Roman Catholic idea of a donum superadditum, some kind of thing added on top of Adam to allow him to obey. They believe that he's created with the grace in him that he needs to obey, but it's still grace. Jonathan Edwards puts it like this. Though our first parent depended on the grace of God, the influences of his spirit in their hearts, yet that grace was given him already and dwelt in him constantly and without interruption in such a degree as to hold him above any lust or sinful habit or principle. So if Adam had obeyed, it would have been by grace. Thirdly, and at more length, there was grace in the reward given or that would have been given to Adam had he obeyed. Now the classic writers again are clear that Adam definitely, absolutely could not have merited his reward in the strict sense of merit. In medieval terms, by condign merit, which is merit in the absolute strict sense, contrasted with congruous merit. Congruous merit is where what you've done isn't actually inherently worthy of the reward you get, but because God is gracious, he gives you a reward. So the Reformed deny absolute condign merit for Adam. The reward would always have exceeded what Adam deserved and would always have been gracious. Now I could pile up pages of quotations here. Um, I'm just going to give you one though. John Ball, very significant covenant theology published around the time of the Westminster Assembly, um, just before it, uh, says this on Adam in the Garden. In this state and condition, Adam's obedience should have been rewarded in justice, notice that, should have been rewarded in justice but he could not have merited that reward. It's a really helpful distinction. Happiness should have been conferred upon him or continued unto him for his works, but they had not deserved the continuance thereof. For if it is, impos- for it is impossible the creature should merit of the creator, because when he has done all that he can, he is an unprofitable servant. He hath done but his duty. Now that's a very interesting pairing, isn't it? Adam's reward would have been a matter of justice, but not of merit. Now, why of justice? Well, because of God's promise, because of his covenant. It's got to happen because God said it's going to happen. But not merited because Adam's obedience did not in and of itself deserve the reward that he would have got. And they always have in mind Luke 17.10 about uh, being an unworthy servant, having only done our duty. Underpinning this conviction is a sense of two disparities in their minds. First of all, the the sheer disparity between God and the creature that means that Adam could never have strictly merited anything from God. So Ball puts it like this, a covenant there is betwixt God and man, but no mutual obligation of debt, for such mutual obligation is founded in some equality. But there is no equality between the creator and the creature, much less betwixt the Lord Most High and man, a sinner. Adam could never have a claim on God because he's got no equality with God. And then the second kind of disparity is a disparity between his obedience and its reward. Turretin uh, talks about the intrinsic value of our work and how it can bear no proportion to the infinite reward of life. Think of Adam's momentary obedience in the garden and the infinity of eternal life stretching ahead of him. There's no comparison, is there? It's only given the covenant, the gracious covenant, that we may speak of the reward being owed. Turretin distinguishes, therefore, a debt properly so-called from a debt of fidelity arising out of the promise. And uh, someone like Samuel Petter, another great Puritan 
theologian of the covenants, talks about an ex pacto reward, a reward out of the covenant, out of the agreement that God has made. That's why it's just, a matter of justice, but it's not merit. So the tradition is clear. There is no strict merit for Adam, but there is merit within the gracious terms of the covenant. Now, we've seen that Klein denies grace before the fall, and he denies it here in this third category as well. He denies this and asserts equally strongly that Adam strictly merited his reward. Strictly merited his reward. It's a matter of justice and merit for Klein that Adam should be rewarded. Now, how does he say that? Well, let me read you a little passage. If the first Adam had obediently fulfilled the stipulations of God's covenant with him, then assuredly he would have been worthy of being declared righteous by his Lord. Adam's justification would have been precisely what those good works deserved. God's declaring Adam righteous would have been an act of justice, pure and simple. In fact, any other verdict would have been injustice. There is absolutely no warrant for obscuring the work's character of such an achievement of justification by introducing the idea of grace into the theological analysis of it. Pretty strong, isn't it? We may be astonished. Strict merit? How could Klein think that Adam could have strict merit and really, really merit his reward by pure and simple justice? Perhaps now we're ready, we're reaching for our guns because now uh, we're the ones reaching for the gun to shoot the Kleinians because they seem to give Adam an unacceptable status before our infinite God in which he has some kind of purchase on God, strictly speaking, and not just out of the covenant. Well, should we reach for our guns? Uh, No, actually we shouldn't. Because when Klein talks about strict merit and affirms strict merit for Adam, he isn't affirming what the Reformed classically are denying. Uh, This is why we need to move slowly and carefully. Let me see if I can unscramble that for you. Uh, Freeze the frame, holster your weapons and think. You know that scene, is it the Matrix? I can't remember where where the the bullets are being fired and Neo gains the power to stop them in mid-flight. And, you can, and, and, and so everybody else is frozen and you can see the bullets in the air and he can sort of move around and do stuff uh, while, while every, the battle is frozen. That's what we need to do here. We need to go and pluck some of these bullets out of the air and just drop them on the ground. And then we can unfreeze the action and carry on and have a sensible conversation without killing one another. Now, does Klein then affirm by strict merit for Adam what the tradition denies? No, he doesn't. For the Reformed, remember, strict merit that is denied to Adam would be merit that has a claim on God outside of the covenant. The reform deny that kind of merit for Adam. They allow merit within the terms of the covenant. Klein, in his positive account of Adam's merit, which he deems to be strict merit, is clear that it's only within the covenant that Adam can merit. So he agrees with Turretin and Petto and the others in his account of the merit that Adam could have had that it arose only from the covenant. He's reformed in that sense. It's not time to reach for your guns. He stands with the tradition. The difference comes when he affirms that this covenantal merit, which is definitely and only covenantal, should also be deemed strict merit. And so our question is, Well, how does he do that? How does he square those two things? 
He does so because he has a whole new framework for defining merit that skews all the categories around and rearranges them. The traditional framework, as you've seen, runs like this. Merit is either absolute merit outside of the covenant, strict merit, or covenantally constituted merit. And the Reformed consider those two options for Adam, and they say he can't have A and he can have B. Klein says, rubbish, there are no such alternatives. It's a nonsense comparison, a nonsense framework. Because the very idea of non-covenantal strict merit is a nonsense. Such merit doesn't exist. The only kind of merit there is conceivable in the universe is merit within the covenant. Adam would have had the one and only kind of merit there is. Covenantal merit. And so, of course, that's strict merit because it's the only merit there is. There's nothing else to compare it to. Strict merit is not to be defined for Klein in some hypothetical outside-the-covenant realm, and that denied to Adam. There is no extra-covenantal realm. Rather, the one kind of merit that there is is defined within the realm that does exist, and that is the realm of the covenant. Covenantal merit is strict merit for Klein. So you see how he's in its positive account. He agrees with the tradition that, that this is covenantal, but he thinks it's also strict. He doesn't like the idea of comparative merit, as if we could calculate the proportion between a deed and its reward and then check that proportion on some objective scale out there to see if it's appropriate. Those scales don't exist, he says. There's just the covenant. The presence or absence of justice, he writes, is not determined by quantitative comparison of the value of the act of obedience and the consequent reward. Rather, there just is the proportion that God sets in the covenant. Lee Irons, who follows Klein, argues that our definition of justice, therefore, of remunerative justice, must be qualified by the limitations placed upon it by all the divine attributes. God's attributes determine what is just. God sets up a covenant, and in that covenant determines what is just. That is then absolute justice, strict justice. There isn't anything else. God defines justice, not some notional scale. Therefore, Klein concludes, there is no grace in the covenant of works. As a revelation, he writes, of God's justice, the terms of the covenant define justice. According to this definition, Adam's obedience would have merited the reward of eternal life and not a gram of grace would have been involved. So no grace in this third category for Klein either. Um, what do we make of that? Does anyone want to ask a question about it? Just to, does it make sense? Because there's no point in me carrying on if we've not understood that. So would anyone like me to have another stab for 30 seconds at explaining it? Um, nobody's nodding. You're okay, are you? Okay, okay I'll carry on then. Um, what do we make of it? Is he right? Should we think Adam merited strictly and deny grace in this kind of way in the covenant of works? Well, I think actually it's brilliant, but wrong. Um, I would actually argue the opposite of Klein on this point, that it is right to speak of Adam's reward as gracious, and therefore that this is definitely not a point where our view of the covenant of works threatens the gospel, where our affirmation of grace in the covenant of works threatens the gospel, as Klein seems to fear that it does. So let me give you some arguments for the idea that there is a meaningful notion of strict merit with which we can compare Adam's covenantal merit. First of all, 
Irons wants us to define remunerative justice, remunerative justice, uh, qualifying it by all of the divine attributes. So what, what Irons and Klein are arguing there is that God defines justice. So he says it's just, so it is just, end of story. But don't we also have to remember the divine attribute of grace? That God is also gracious. Should we not, with the Reformed tradition and setting them against themselves, therefore, conclude that the covenant of works will, because it is in accord with the attributes of God, be both just, God's holiness, and gracious, his love? So their very argument from the attributes of God seems to count against them at that point. God's attributes, if we remember his divine simplicity, are all one in him. So that he doesn't define remunerative justice in the absence of his grace. Second argument. This denial of an extra-covenantal standard of merit, I think, can be questioned from the being of God. The foundation of the Klein-Irons case is that there is no possible notion of extra-covenantal value, it seems to me. There's nothing with which to compare the value of Adam's obedience or its merit and conclude that it is, by that comparison, graciously constituted. That seems to me to be mistaken because it fails to account for God himself. There is a scale of value established by the triune life of God. Must we not say that the person of the Son has an absolute infinite worth to his Father? Is not the very being and work of the persons of the Trinity intrinsically and extra-covenantally infinitely valuable? Here is a scale by which we can see that humans, and down the line therefore their obedience, lack comparative worth. The Klein position seems to me to entail a very voluntaristic account of worth and merit, resting on the idea that the good is good just because God wills it. And I want to have a more intellectualist doctrine of God, which says, well, no, we emphasise God's being as well as his will when we define value and worth and goodness. We need a Trinitarian intellectualist doctrine of God, a doctrine that grounds God's goodness in the triune being of God, in his essence, his single essence, in the persons, in the relations. These are measures of worth. Who God is measures worth. And against God, Adam is absolutely nothing in his value. Therefore, his works will be nothing. Secondly, can we argue more specifically about merit? Because, of course, worth and merit are a little bit different. Well, I think we can. Isn't there a comparison point for Adam's merit that allows to see how, us to see how tiny it is? Yes, the Son himself merits within a covenant, the Trinitarian covenant, covenant of redemption between the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. People disagree about that, that's why I did that. Um, but nonetheless, don't we still have to say that the covenantal merit of the eternal Son of God dwarfs the covenantal merit of an obedient Adam? Because the Son merits as the eternal Son of God. Yes, he obeys in his human nature, but the humanity of Christ gains its worth and therefore its merit from the divine person. The humanity of Christ, recall your systematics, is anhypostatic and enhypostatic. It doesn't find its hypostasis, its personhood, in itself. It finds its personhood in the divine Son. Therefore, when 
Jesus Christ the mediator obeys. It is the divine son who obeys in his human nature. And therefore his obedience has an infinite merit. Covenantally constituted, but infinite. Now this is not Nestorianism. I'm not saying, oh, there's the man Jesus over there doing his obeying. That's exactly what I'm not saying. I'm saying, no, no, it's the eternal son who obeys in his human nature. And therefore has, in his obedience, an infinite merit. That seems to me to be a clear and definite point of contrast with Adam, whose merit is tiny and insignificant and dwarfed compared to the merit of the Son of God. And that seems to me to reintroduce the category, therefore, of a gracious reward for an obedient Adam. Fourth point on this um, response to Klein is this. What's worrying them? Well, remember what's worrying them is that we're going to lose the distinction between grace and law for us if we lose it for Adam. If we allow grace back into Eden, then we can have us also being saved by some kind of mix of grace and law or faith and works. seems to me it just doesn't follow because we're at different points in history. Uh, just give you two examples of that. Adam had incurred no debt of sin. There was no need for atonement for Adam. There was nothing to put right for Adam. Had he obeyed, there would have been no need for an atonement by somebody else. But we depend on somebody else coming to atone for our sins because we can't. Secondly, even our good works require cleansing by the blood of Christ. There's that amazing passage in Calvin where he talks about how our good works need to be justified. Not about how we're justified by good works, but the works that we do in the power of the Spirit themselves are so tainted by sin that they need to be justified. So we could never do anything like Adam could have done in the garden, therefore. In some, then, I would argue with Roberts and the other classical Reformed Covenant theologians that the covenant of works was a gracious covenant. Finding grace in Eden, at least in the ways I've described it, does not threaten the covenant of grace. The charge, the Kleinian charge at this point, is an example of a false positive. Just a word on the terms for the covenant that's relevant at this point. Roberts, you remember, says, don't call the covenant of grace the covenant of grace, because there was grace in Eden. Klein, interestingly, at one point, has a mirror image argument. He says, don't call the covenant of works the covenant of works. Well, odd, you might think he'd be the person who'd really want to call it the covenant of works. But he doesn't. He says, don't call it the covenant of works, because you still need works in the covenant of grace. You need the works of Christ. Christ has got to do all the good works for our justification. And you might add, and we have to do good works as well, not for our justification, but we're commanded to do them. So you've got works after the fall as well, and at this point you're beginning to think these strict terms of works versus um, grace, they, they break down. You've got Klein arguing one way and Roberts arguing another way. Klein's argument is actually all of these kinds of terms are too anthropological. I think this is a really good point. They denote the covenant on the basis of what we creatures do in the covenant, works or faith. That's an odd thing to do, isn't it? Isn't it much better to, to, to denote the covenant by what God does and to talk about the covenant of creation and the covenant of redemption or salvation or perhaps mercy? I think that's a good point, isn't it? Okay, that was an aside. Second issue. So here's another one, just to remind you where we are. We're thinking, is every kind of version or alternative version of the covenant of works fatal for the covenant of grace, and I've just argued that the idea that there is grace in Eden is not fatal for the covenant of grace, for our understanding of the gospel. So here's another candidate. What about the idea that Adam had to have faith? If we start talking about the importance of Adam having faith, is it all over? Uh, because he's become too much like us, and we're losing those kinds of antitheses again. 
Well, interestingly, the Reformed tradition, again, clearly, consistently affirms that Adam had and needed to have faith in Eden. Turretin teaches he needed to have faith in the word of God in order to love God as he was required to. Before the fall, he writes, he had the power to love God and obey him in all things. For love supposes faith, a part of obedience. For he who is commanded by law to love God and obey him is also commanded to believe him when he speaks. It's just obvious, isn't it, really? Satan tempts Adam to unbelief, to doubt the word of God in Genesis 3, 1, 4 and 5. Interestingly, Turretin explicitly states that the idea of faith in the garden is not excluded by a right emphasis on the law-gospel contrast or antithesis. He says, although as to the peculiar formula the law and gospel differ from each other, yet they agree in this, that they are equally the word of God and so the object of our faith and the rule of obedience. Adam needed to have faith in the covenant of works. But the Reformed are also historically clear that Adam's faith is significantly different from ours. While Adam had faith, it served a different role from the role of faith in the covenant of grace. He had faith, but not justifying faith in an alien righteousness. Now, among others, Peter Lightheart, in an article, is critical of this idea, this traditional idea that Adam's faith was different from our faith. And he argues strikingly that the covenant of works, with its emphasis on works, means that, I quote, Adam was created a Catholic, but became Protestant after he fell. (laughs) Protestantism is reduced to a post-lapsarian form of Christianity, and this, of course, is intended to make us uncomfortable. Does does the covenant of works mean that we are, that basically creation is Catholic? Hmm, It's interesting, isn't it? And he argues... um, fairly briefly, but quite strongly against this idea that our faith is different from Adam's faith, commenting on the passage from Turretin, he puts it like this. First, in this passage, faith changes its character from a work to a mere instrument. Once Adam leaves the garden and lives outside, how did that happen? How can faith change its character in this way because of sin? And where is the exegetical support for such a notion? Well, that's what I want to do now, is give you some support for such a notion, to explain the differences, and to argue, no, in fact, there is a real and important difference between the faith that Adam had to have and the faith that we have to have. Now, in one sense, I agree with Lightheart. Faith is faith. At least if you're comparing adults, there are in Reformed thought, as you no doubt know, um, understanding of seminal faith in Calvin, or radical faith, as in root faith in Turretin, that is found in infants, on the basis of passages like Psalm 22, 9 to 10. That faith may be different, but when you're comparing adults, and of course you are comparing adults when you compare Adam and us, the faith seems basically to be the same. It's got to involve knowledge, knowledge of the command about the tree, what God said. It's got to involve assent to the truth of it. It's got to involve trusting it. So in that basic sense, Adam's faith would have been the same as our faith. But there are nonetheless, I would argue, vital differences, and these are the ones I've gleaned from 17th century covenant theologians. First of all, Adam's faith would have been unhindered. There's nothing in the way. Ball says, there was not the least possible cause or suspicion why man should doubt of God's love, for sin had not yet entered into the world. Exegetical basis for that? Well, everything's good and very good in the garden. There are no obstacles. Second difference, faith for Adam was natural. Ball and Roberts make just this point. It's part of the attack on the Catholic idea. Um, Faith is just something that Adam would have had by constitution. And 
the exegetical basis for this? Well, again, because everything is good and very good in the garden. Adam isn't unregenerate. He doesn't have an unbelieving nature. He doesn't need to be born again to believe. Thirdly, faith in the garden would have differed in what Roberts calls its associates or companions, principally in its companionship with repentance. Adam didn't need to repent. There is no command because, again, everything is good and very good. Fourthly, Adam's faith had a mutable fruit. Adam's faith, Roberts puts it, produced a changeable righteousness in himself, a mutable person. Ours an unchangeable righteousness from Christ and the Spirit, which are unchangeable. So if somebody truly has faith, I know there are, there are false kinds of faith, temporary kinds of faith, faith of miracles, things that the other reform talk about. But if somebody is actually regenerate and has true faith, they can't lose it. It's not mutable. Adam's faith is mutable and its fruit is mutable. No, I don't, this is speculation, I don't think Adam was alive for very long. Roberts argues he died um, on the day of his creation, didn't make it to his first Sabbath. Um, and I think there's quite a good series of arguments for that, we can try that later. Um, but even then, he's exercising faith for a little bit of time, um, and it becomes mutable, he loses it. Ours doesn't. Fifth, and this is the key difference, surely. Adam is called to trust God, but not to trust in the righteousness of another to bring him life. Blake puts it like this, another 17th century covenant theologian. Though he had that faith which now serves to justify, yet it needed not, nor could be improved, to take in any other righteousness without himself for justification. Man stood then on his own bottom. His dependence, I love it, his dependence was on God for being, but that being which God pleased to communicate was in that integrity and purity that he needed not any farther. By contrast, the conditions, he says, of the covenant of grace carry man out of himself. He must be righteous with a righteousness extrinsical or else he will never be able to stand in judgment. So Adam, unlike us, stood on his own bottom. And Roberts goes on to talk about the absence of a mediator for Adam. He needed not the mediation of Jesus Christ, the second or last Adam, either for satisfaction, for he had no way sinned, or for intercession, for Adam wanted nothing and was completely acceptable to God in his person, or for imputation of Christ's righteousness and obedience to him. For Adam was perfectly upright and obedient in himself. Oh, what a difference betwixt Adam then and Adam's posterity now. And therefore his faith is different. He writes, Adam's faith acted towards God without any consideration of a mediator. Ours acteth towards God by Christ, the mediator. Now again, what's the exegetical basis for this? Well, there isn't anyone there in Eden. Adam has to believe in the truth and goodness of God and his command, clearly, in Genesis. But there's no one present in Eden from whom he is to seek his forgiveness or his covenant-fulfilling righteousness. He depends on God for his own strength, yes, but he would stand by the strength at work in him and not by the strength that has done its justifying work in someone else. Therefore, had Adam believed God and done the good work of obeying him, he would have been promoted on the meritorious basis of his own faith and its works of obedience. When we believe God, we are justified on the basis of Christ's acts. That is a vital difference that we must preserve. If the denial of the difference between Adam's faith and our faith means a denial of this difference, then of course the gospel is lost because you've erased the mediator. If the justification of Adam by faith and works is projected onto us, well, then we are lost. Now, as it happens, I don't think that is what Peter Lightheart is arguing for in his article. But his denial of the differences between our faith and Adam's faith at this point is wrong. Such a denial could be taken 
and developed into something seriously wrong if it were then used to detach us from Christ for our justification. Lightheart doesn't think that. He believes we're justified by Christ's uh, justification. Uh, but could go there in other hands if you missed that difference between our faith and Adam's faith. So then, does that actually mean Adam was a Catholic? Huh. Justified by faith and works. Or was he a Protestant? It's a wonderful provocative question, but I think I want to say it's the wrong question. It's an inappropriate question. Because the terms Catholic and Protestant make sense as descriptions of post-fall religion. They describe competing claims to the gospel, to what is and is not good news for sinners. They are, in other words, soteriologies. They are not, in their disagreement over faith and works at least, protologies, doctrines of creation. They are not at this juncture trying to describe who Adam was before he fell. The problem with Roman Catholicism is that it's soteriology. Adam was just Adam, living in a world where neither Protestant nor Catholic doctrines of of salvation, of justification, existed because no salvation was necessary. Now, what have we learnt in this session then? Let me sum up. Substantive things, I hope, that we all need to consider such questions, whether we think Adam was in a covenant with God or not, that the Adam-Christ connection matters, and that there are ways of understanding Adam that are theologically fatal. For example, denying his existence, denying his headship, denying the extrospective nature of our justification, of our justifying faith contrasted with his. But there are other ways of understanding him that are not in themselves fatal. They may be wrong, I would argue against them, but they're not fatal. For example, insisting on grace before the fall, I would argue, is right and not fatal. Insisting on the importance of Adam's faith before the fall, I would argue, is right right, and not fatal. So, in sum, we need to be ready to disagree, but we need to be slow to enter the launch codes.